there, and welcome to The Expressionists, the podcast that explores how idioms connect us to the past and to each other. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I am Helen Rydstrand. And today on the show, we have an exceptional guest joining us for a very special episode that we think you're really going to get a kick out of. Hi, I'm James Parkinson, host and producer of By Association, which is a narrative podcast about football and the human connection behind the beautiful game. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us. Now, it's going to run a little bit differently than our regular episodes, but not to worry, we've got a game plan. And even if you're not a fan of sports, we're pretty sure you won't find this episode out of your league at all. So without further ado, let's get the ball rolling, guys. Yeah, so the game at the moment is kind of in a really uh, somewhat healthy position. Uh, Australia, the national team, has just qualified for its fourth consecutive World Cup. Um, so I guess you could say it's a bit of a, a purple patch uh, for the current generation. Funny you should say that, James. A little while ago, I had a disagreement with my partner about what the phrase purple patch even means. He insisted that it referred to a really good streak of success for a football team or player. I knew that along with the variants purple passage and purple prose, it actually means a random, ornate, overly poetic passage within a plainer prose text. You might say that it's a bit that sticks out like a sore thumb. So, uh, in most shorter quick reference dictionaries I found, the first definition is in fact the run of success one, with a note that it is British slang. Um, So that implies, I think, that this is the more common meaning these days. And often it is about sports specifically. So the Collins Dictionary specifies that it is especially relevant to sports, And both Merriam-Webster and the Shorter Oxford Dictionary on my computer provide a sample sentence that is about sport. So, Helen, are you admitting that you were wrong? (laughs) No, definitely not. Actually, both of us were right. And in some ways, I was a little bit more right because my definition is the older one. I'm not sure if I would agree with that characterisation, but carry on. The Oxford English Dictionary has Purple Patch first appearing in modern English in around 1704, but apparently it is in fact modelled on a Latin term, purpurius panus, appearing in Horace's Ars Poetica, that's the art of poetry, around 19 BCE, which another source tells me that no less than Elizabeth I translated into English for the first time in 1598. But it does really come into its own in the 18th century, which is when style, including in prose, started to become a big thing. And it's been in consistent use in certain circles, such as my own, ever since. But what about the football one? Uh, It's kind of what we're here for today. Right. Yeah, fair enough, James. Uh, Given that we know association football, indeed all the football codes, were not codified until around the 1860s and 70s, we would have to assume that this phrase or this version of the phrase is a little bit later than my own definition. First, I just want to clarify that the definition is actually not limited to football specifically. It is a notable or colourful period of time in a person's life. Or now, more commonly, I think, a specialist term for a run of good luck or success. I suspect that the specialist refers to, so this is from the OED, that it refers to football or sports in general. That's a specialism. So the first example sentence in the OED is from 1912, and it is from the Times, quote, It would doubtless be unreasonable to find fault with newspapers for devoting all their attention for the past month to the purple patches of contemporary Irish history. Now, wait a minute, Helen. I might just blow the whistle on you there. 
this isn't even about football at all, is it? Uh, yeah, well, that's what I started to think during my research as well. And to be honest, I would have been pretty happy to find that my partner was totally wrong. But I thought it would be fair for me to go and do a little bit more digging. So to find out why he might have thought it was a football-related phrase, I did some trawling through Twitter and various sports news publications to see if it was especially connected to soccer. And I think it is, though it does get used elsewhere quite a bit as well. That's a bit of a shame for you, Helen, because you might say if he'd been wrong, you really would have got a kick out of it. (laughs) That's true, I would. (laughs) Um, So when I went to Twitter in the 20 most recent tweets to use the phrase purple patch, 12 of them were about soccer. Three were about other sports, I think cricket, and five were about other random stuff entirely, including just one referencing Horace's art poetica. What about uh, just general in the media? Yeah. So what I did uh, was a bit of a comparison. And I think this is kind of interesting, given the sort of history of soccer and football that we're talking about. I looked at the websites of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian, which are, of course, Australian and British publications, respectively. And I think the results are pretty interesting. Both of them turned up quite a few headlines with wordplay about Prince, uh, aka the artist formerly known as, um, or Deep Purple, another band. Also, there were recipes for eggplant and an article about Cadbury. (laughs) (laughs) So then in the Australian paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, Purple Patch turns up in reference to a range of different sports, including AFL and cricket and swimming and whatever. But in The Guardian, it is almost exclusively used with reference to reporting on what we call soccer quite often, or more recently, if we were up to date, we would just call football. But just occasionally, there's a cricket or politics, um, which get a look in as well. So what do you think? Sounds like it um, gets kicked about a bit. It does. My feeling is that this does indicate that the phrase has a bit more currency in football conversations, especially British ones. Definitely in all of the Twitter conversations. It was clearly like an, a known term, um, not at all unusual. And now the question is how or maybe if the phrase leapt from overly fancy language in writing, and often this is a bad thing, like you're writing badly if you've got a purple patch, to a streak of success in a a player's career or for a football team. Definitely in the general sense, you can see how maybe it got it got used sort of figuratively, like it leapt from talking about like a style, kind of fancy style in writing to like maybe a fancy style of playing, something like that. Certainly there are players who are, f- are famed for their like nifty style, right, James? Sure. So, I mean, football is, is you know, it's called the beautiful game for a reason um, in that it uh, there is a poetry to, to football. So, um, yeah, I could definitely see how that kind of just naturally uh, evolved into kind of the football realm. Nice. I like that. So that's, I mean, I think we're coming up with a bit of a working kind of explanation there. One other is just the colour purple is often associated with, you know, aristocracy, royalty. It's always been associated with sort of the upper echelons of society. In Roman times, statesmen and emperors wore purple. Tyrian purple in ancient times, which was also known as Phoenician purple, is made in a particular part of the world and it's extracted from tens of thousands of snails, usually this particular purple. Um, So it was very expensive. Like you had to obviously collect all the snails and you had to boil them or whatever you did to them. And so this was such a big deal that Phoenicia is actually named after this. Like Phoenicia means the land of purple. So this kind of implies... It doesn't mean the land of snails. Doesn't mean the land of snail, the the (laughs) colour. So this kind of implies that a purple patch is like just, you know, when you're right at the top of your game, you're sort of the king of of football. 
So, Helen, in doing this research, what you have done is kind of prove yourself a little bit wrong also in regards to this argument with your partner. Oh, yeah. So you might say you kind of scored an own goal. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So I wanted to talk about one which uh, has a unique history, and I've actually mentioned it uh, on Buy Association uh, in a previous episode. But this phrase is called back to square one. Now, it has a few different theories. Uh, there's speculation that it could have you know, come from the children's game Hopscotch uh, or the classic board game Snakes and Ladders. But, you know, personally, being a football fan, I like its football origin story. So, in 1927, broadcasting football matches on the radio uh, was brand new. And uh, it, was, it was first started by the BBC. And uh, because it was so new, they were just learning, you know, how to communicate what was actually happening in a match effectively. So, uh, the magazine Radio Times actually published a diagram of a football pitch uh, where the field of play was kind of divided into uh, uh, squares or a grid, um, each with a corresponding number. So, uh, as the commentator was calling out the play, someone else in the background, sort of, you know, uh, sitting off mic, uh, would continuously call out the number that corresponded to the area of the pitch where the play uh, was unfolding. And obviously in football, you're trying to move the ball up the pitch from your own defensive half towards the opposition half to score. So, what I'm guessing is uh, the goalkeeper's square in this grid was, you know, number one. Uh, so, when the team was forced to, you know, pass back to the goalkeeper, uh, commentators would often say something like, back to square one. Fantastic. Wow. So, does that mean that there were two square ones at either end? Were they, would they have been numbered towards the middle and then you'd kind of, they'd be like, you know, square eight or whatever, ten next to each other and then back? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure. I haven't seen a, a, a picture of what this kind of grid would have looked like. But what I'm assuming is that it would default to whoever had the possession of the ball, whoever was attacking, basically. So, yeah, if one team had the ball, then it would be referenced to, to wherever their play was situated. And obviously, the main commentator would be, would be saying who was in possession. Um, so, it would kind of just unfold that way. I think it's really interesting how quickly these really specific turns of phrase then get adapted into everyday speech and become a really widely used metaphor. So I don't think I would have at all thought that back to square one was such a recent coinage because it's so, um, it's so much a part of everyday speech. Yeah, it really is. I think as well the fact that it was used in broadcasting is probably a better case than, say, hopscotch uh, or snakes and ladders, in that it became you know more generalized and more popular um, because it was kind of you know being broadcast and people were hearing it you know so often. Um, and then within football, there is kind of you know a lot of phrases like that that are you know almost cliches now um, and almost overused in, in a lot of cases. But um, yeah, to me, it makes sense that this is you know very much a, a football phrase. Yeah, and as well, I suppose like we're not interested in what kids say really. Things that actually, you know, are said in important spheres like sport and media kind of and actually get written down are more likely to take hold. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's absolutely right. Not once in our two seasons of The Expressionists have we found any idiom that has originated in children's, you know, speech or children's literature even. I think there was one, which I can't remember what it was. I mean, there are some in like children's, um, in in like fairy tales tales, and and, uh, other sort of stories that are told to children, like Mm. Chicken Licken, Henny Penny, but in terms of the speech of children. Mm. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. I never would have guessed the specific nature of that history is really cool. 
that like it comes out of the, the BBC in this like tiny moment in time. Yeah. And it's such a great visual yes. origin. I mean, you can just totally visualize how that works. Yeah. And people sitting down in front of the radio with their little... Even grief. someone like me who like couldn't say anything about sport to save my life. Yeah, I get that. It makes sense. Mm. I know what shape a soccer field is. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's something about like educating your listeners, your, your audience to deal with this new kind of medium of commentary because was there kind of like commentary in the same sense before this James there's someone at the football field saying it out loud in person no no I mean the earliest cases of sports broadcasting around the same time or a little bit earlier um, was actually baseball in the United States and then yeah football started to become more popular and when it was first introduced they didn't think it would be successful at all they thought it would actually uh, take away from people actually attending football and you know selling newspapers they thought well if people can just listen to it on the radio uh, at home then they're not going to bother turning up but in fact the opposite was true so it didn't affect attendances at all uh, and the broadcast themselves increased and I think you know a few years later the BBC were broadcasting over a hundred games a season so it just kept growing and growing and obviously we're at the point now where we have almost uh, media saturation uh, as as you know TV came on board and uh, just about everything else yeah I've actually heard of people putting on TV broadcasts of sports matches, not just soccer, and then turning on the broadcast commentary because, I don't know, they think that's better. Yeah, that's a common thing. Um, But it also makes me think, like the fact that people thought, oh, people are never going to listen to a broadcast. You just can't underestimate the power of the mind's eye, can you? That's it, the power of audio. So talking of the mind's eye, guys, what do you think of when you hear the term soccer mom? I think of Sarah Palin, is that correct? Oh, interesting, interesting. Uh, I'll take James's answer first before I respond to that, Helen. Uh, not quite Sarah Palin, but yeah, kind of middle America, mum with, you know, three kids racing around to drop them off at, you know, their weekend sports and soccer games, basically. Interesting. Um, and, and what's really interesting about what you guys have both said is neither of them, or perhaps the Sarah Palin answer a little bit, has any real judgment by the sounds of what you're saying. It's kind of a pure descriptive thing. So I'll give you first the Oxford English Dictionary's definition, which, as we know, is an, a British English publication. And then I'll give you the Merriam-Webster definition, which is an American English publication. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a soccer mom, a soccer mom, and I should specify that this is a North American colloquial term, although I would say it's been adopted in Australia. And your pronunciation implies that it always has to be spelt M-O-M? Well, certainly in my research, I definitely (laughs) found a lot more soccer mom than soccer mom. Yeah. According to the OED, it is a woman whose child plays soccer especially, often derogatively, a suburban middle-class woman who spends a lot of time actively and enthusiastically supporting her young child or children's sporting and other activities. Now, there's a subtle difference in Merriam-Webster's definition, which is a typically suburban mother who accompanies her children to their soccer games and is considered as part of a significant voting block or demographic group. Fascinating. Totally. So we're going to talk a little bit more about these definitions in a bit. First of all, Helen, I need to say that you are wrong. Sarah Palin is not a soccer mom. In fact, Sarah Palin is a self-declared 
Hockey Mom, which is the North North American equivalent, which is fantastic. Because it's much colder there, they play a lot more ice hockey than they do soccer. Sarah Palin is from Alaska. In Canada, Canadians um, use much more the term Hockey Mom than Soccer Mom. (laughs) I might just drop the American accent from here on. And Sarah Palin actually has a famous quote. What is the difference between a Hockey Mom and a Pitbull? Lipstick. Ah, yeah, I remember that one. Very good. Yeah, very Sarah Palin. And so, yeah, my feeling is that this one has been enthusiastically adopted into Australian English too. And I do feel like we do have the slightly derogatory connotations. I think, yeah, look, I think it exists um, in some circles. Um, I mean, I don't have kids myself and I'm not really involved in, in junior soccer. So, can't really tell you if that's that widespread I would say, yeah, some people might might use it, but to me, it's, it still says, you know, that it's an Americanization. Mm, yeah. I mean, I had a friend in uni who, when we were both finishing our PhDs, she was actually a bit ahead of me, she declared her intention of becoming a soccer mum. Wow. And she's not quite yet because her kids are still both toddlers, but, you know, she'll get there. I think. Well, I mean, for that friend, you should. I've got a list of links to send her because there's actually a lot of literature out there about what it takes to be a soccer mum and how you can foster that in yourself. And it's interesting. A lot of common themes in these articles are that they involve, you know, being very well prepared with snacks for everyone, being on time, drinking Starbucks coffee, and driving an SUV. Right. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of this. Idiom. The first recorded usage in the Oxford English Dictionary was in 1973 in the Argus, which is a now defunct newspaper in Fremont, California. And obviously this was written in by someone. You should see my son play. He is a tiger. Signed, soccer mom, Fremont. Right. So this woman has declared herself proudly to be a soccer mom. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I feel like maybe now, I don't know, it's hard to say because obviously, I mean, I don't. I also don't have direct experience with this phrase, but I feel like I don't know if people would like happily, proudly describe themselves as such. Except for my friend. Except for your friend. It's interesting. There's there's a, like, I mean, she definitely kind of, it was an ironic, like, association, I think. Yeah. With the phrase. Yeah, so I think this brings up the point that moving through this, we'll see that there are some very interesting class and gender-based nuances to this expression. So looking back at some of the early usages, I found a news article from the LA Times in 1991 describing a woman who killed her two young children as, quote, a brownie troop leader, a soccer mum, and a Sunday school teacher at the church where her four-year-old Stephanie attended preschool. The vibe of the whole story was how she appeared normal, but how depression can often be hidden in highly functioning people. And I don't see this description as derogatory at all. And I don't think that if that case happened today in 2018, that the journalist would describe her as a soccer mom because there is that sort of vague derogatory nature. What do you reckon? I think in some circles it would have that derogatory aspect. Um, But I think there is kind of room for it to be used um, lightheartedly and possibly kind of tongue in cheek. But I think it all depends on context. Mm. Absolutely, but I think you're right. Like tongue in cheek, it probably wouldn't be in an article about a woman suffering from depression who shot her two children, right? Well, definitely not. not. No. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully not. Right. So then let's compare that and and taking that tongue in cheek uh, usage, let's compare that to a more recent article from the New York Times in 2013, headlined "New York 
soccer mum accused of running $3 million marijuana operation. So what's really interesting about that is that soccer mum is in inverted commas. This woman, um, who had two daughters aged 3 and 13, she drove a Mercedes SUV and also competed in horse racing competitions, was growing $3 million worth of hydroponic marijuana. Nice. So I think that those inverted commas around soccer mum indicate a, a sort of irony there that someone, because it's a very wholesome, you know, a, it's a very wholesome image of the soccer mum and here they are saying, well, she was anything but. Yeah, because it's derogatory because the woman like invests her whole kind of identity in her children, right? She's got nothing else to do but like drive them around and cheer them on at the sidelines. Right, right, which is where some really interesting gender stuff comes in that we'll talk about later. But the term really gained a lot of traction when it was adopted in the 1996 US presidential election. You might say that at that time it became a bit of a political football So that election was Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole, and Clinton won what was his second term. But the expression was something that was adopted during that campaign by two Republican strategists, Alex Castellanos and Ed Gillespie. So they talked about the soccer mom as a voting demographic that they were trying to chase. And they have since described it as being the suburban white woman who had backed George Bush four years earlier, George H.W. Bush, that is, and whose votes they thought might be up for grabs in Bill Clinton's America. In other words, they thought that this group of people would potentially be swing voters. So from a Washington Post article on the 21st of July, 1996, the president is sending a message to a voter Castellanos calls soccer mum, the overburdened middle-income working mother who ferries her kids from soccer to scouts to school. So since that time, though, the use of that term has been pretty heavily criticised because there's much more to a voter's demographic than gender and obviously you know what about the soccer dads also the implication is that this gender or this kind of particular group of women is like you know they're swinging voters so they just kind of go with the flow they don't really have any ideas of their own in particular absolutely absolutely interestingly uh, it's sort of a term that has emerged again in the current political situation in America. So Ta-Nehisi Coates uses the term in his recent article in The Atlantic called The First White President, which is a great article and I definitely recommend everyone read. So he says, From the beer track to the wine track, from soccer mums to NASCAR dads, Trump's performance among whites was dominant. So, yeah, once again, there we're seeing a gender distinction there. But, yeah, I think it's interesting uh, to to think about the, the gender implications. As you mentioned, Helen, the idea that a woman would have nothing better to do and invests all her time and effort and thoughts into, you know, the pursuits of her children. And I think that misogyny is really uh, backed up in many and various definitions listed on Urban Dictionary. Uh, lots of things about sexual acts with older women, uh, just really uh, gross and misogynistic stuff there too. I wanted to finish this, bit of a downer, sorry guys, so I wanted to finish this with a bit of a fun fact. I was, you know, doing news searches to find instances of this in news publications And I found in 2005, and James, this might be something that you're aware of, but there was this spate of kidnappings in Brazil of the mothers of famous soccer players. So 
in four months, four soccer players' mothers were abducted, and those soccer players were Mourinho, Fabiano, Rodrigo, and Robinho. Do you know any of them, James? Uh, Fabiano and Robinho, I do, but I was unaware of this story. This is um, this is incredible. Why is this a light ending? Sorry, it's not. It's actually one. really dangerous to be kidnapped in. South America. You're right. And to be honest, I didn't <laughs> yeah. actually follow up and see what happened if to them. the mums made it out. I'm sure. I just, I, I think they did. I hope they did. It's just, an, it's not a fun, it's not a fun, it's, it's an interesting and unusual thing, right? Not a fun fact. And we are definitely not condoning or even suggesting that there is anything fun or lighthearted about the abduction of mothers. So I do apologize <laughs> for suggesting that. But see, you're, you're laughing. <laughs> All right, James, I think you've got a bit of a game changer to close out the episode for us today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So this one is very much, you know, embedded in football and, you know, hasn't entered common usage, but it's definitely one of my favorites and it's a cultured left foot. So it's well known that left-handed and left-footed people uh, make up a a much smaller percentage of the population around the world, right? Uh, So this is a term uh, that's given to highly skilled and technically gifted uh, left-footed players. Uh, The idea being that because they're rarer, uh, they have more of a a kind of a mystical status uh, within the game. And uh, in reality, uh, this is often a genuine problem when it comes to recruiting players for clubs and selecting them for national teams, because uh, naturally there's just a much smaller player pool uh, to pick from. So you'll occasionally hear the phrase spoken by commentators and used by football writers, and its usage, you know, may be becoming less frequent these days as it's you know often viewed uh, as an overused cliche but uh, you know it has inspired things like books and and football blogs and, and things like that so it's it's kind of a yeah it's an interesting one but um definitely one that I enjoy well as as one of those rare gems a left-handed person I love it and I think I might like to start I might just um make my own adaptations and start referring to my cultured left hand yeah <laughs> Very good. And were you able to trace where this came from? Not particularly, no. But I do, I think that, you know, it's, it's more of a kind of a, a football kind of broadcasting term. One of those phrases that commentators will throw out there to to describe a particular player um, and kind of, you know, add some some colour to the broadcast. Can I tell you what it makes me think of? Sure. So, like, the foot also is a place where fungus can grow and fungus is often cultivated. Right. So, it just makes me think of a sort of a very right. fungusy <laughs> foot. You know, take off those soccer shoes, whatever they're called. What are they called? Boots. Take off those soccer boots, boots yeah. and you might find a very, very cultured left foot if that person doesn't have good personal hygiene practices. I guess that makes sense. You could certainly flip it that way if you are if you are so inclined. I was thinking of butter. Sorry to <laughs> share our random thoughts on your lovely phrase. Helen, we should just keep our eye on the ball a little bit more. Yeah, good. James, thank you so much for joining us on The Expressionists. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And can you tell our listeners where and how to find you if they want more of your stories about the beautiful game? Sure. So you can subscribe to Buy Association uh, through the website, buyassociation.audio, uh, and it's also on all the major podcast apps and platforms. So uh, just search for it or go straight to the website. All the links will be there. And we highly recommend it. It's a great show. 
So that brings this special crossover episode of The Expressionist to a close. Now, both sides played a good game, but I think football was the real winner today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like to support us, you can, thanks to Patreon, a platform that makes it easy for creatives like us and James to get paid, and it can cost you as little as $2 a month. You can find the link to our Patreon page on our website at expressionists.audio. I'm Helen Rydstrand. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And we are The Expressionists. Bye for now. Bye.